From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, lots of pomp in London. Then Ron Elving on the weekend politics here in the Crown's former colonies. And then Pussy Riot receives an award for making art, music, and protests despite jailings and threats from the Russian government. Nadia Tolokonikova says... Fear calls autocracies together. If you refuse to fear, then autocracies do not have a chance. And later, is there a hidden cost to privacy? to online medical services, and a new Romanian film tells the story of a small town that's suspicious to new arrivals. Could it be set just about anywhere? First, our newscast, it's Saturday, May 6, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. King Charles III has been crowned. More than 2,000 guests, including world leaders and other dignitaries, were inside London's Westminster Abbey for the coronation ceremony, in which the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, led the crowd in reciting the People's Pledge, an oath of allegiance to the King. I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. The coronation ceremony has been updated, but its roots date back centuries. Outside the Abbey, people crowded into central London to be on hand for the event that many see as historic. Police in London, meanwhile, have arrested a leading figure in Britain's anti-monarchy group called Republic. The arrest came just before the start of King Charles's coronation, as Philip Marks reports. Footage posted on social media appeared to show Graham Smith, the chief executive of the campaign group, being arrested by police alongside five other demonstrators wearing T-shirts that read, Not My King. They were unloading a series of signs to hand out to other protesters on the edge of Trafalgar Square, a frequent site of demonstrations in central London. Republic criticized the action in response to what they called a peaceful protest and said the police would not provide a reason for the arrests. New legislation introduced this week outlaws any effort by protesters to lock themselves to immovable objects and London's Metropolitan Police said a, quote, significant police operation is underway ahead of the coronation. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in London. Secretary of State Antony Blinken toured the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as the agency works to stand up a new global health bureau. Sam Greenglass, member station WABE in Atlanta, has more. Blinken says there's all kinds of overlap between diplomacy and public health. He says that became clear as the COVID-19 pandemic unfolded. We know that when health security breaks down, it's almost inevitably going to have an impact on our national security. There are disease outbreaks that uh, go uncontrolled and unmanaged. We have everything from potentially societal breakdowns to mass migrations, all of which have a profound impact on national security. CDC experts are in 60 embassies to help spot and respond to outbreaks. The CDC and State Department also collaborate on the fight against HIV-AIDS and the opioid epidemic. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Secretary Blinken visited the CDC in Atlanta the same day that Dr. Rochelle Walensky announced her resignation. She has sent a resignation letter to President Biden, and her last day as the head of the CDC will be June 30th. In her letter, Walensky does not explained why she is stepping down after two years, but she wrote that the nation is at a moment of transition with the COVID emergency winding down. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Two doctors at Salem Hospital will have to pay $29 million to the family of a man who died of an aortic aneurysm while in their care. A jury has found Dr. Stephen Browell and William Kenyon negligent in treating Joseph Brown Jr. in 2018. His family argued Brown died after doctors failed to order a simple test that would have detected his life-threatening condition soon enough to be treated. Instead, the 43-year-old died on his way to emergency surgery. Attorney Robert Higgins represents Brown's family. The reality of this case is it's a case of something that, that absolutely was preventable. A simple test, a CAT scan would have shown this. A spokesperson for Salem Hospital says hospital staff members hold themselves to the highest standards and the hospital extends condolences to Brown's family. Nantucket residents are expected to decide today whether to make major changes to the island's short-term rental market. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more. A resident proposal slated to be presented at town meeting today would slash the number of available short-term rentals, like Airbnbs. It would require that short-term rentals be a primary residence for the majority of the year. Proponents of the bill say it would alleviate pressure on the tight housing market that has pushed out longtime residents. They also hope to tamp down on the tourist overcrowding issues on the island. Opponents say the measure would drastically cut down on available rental properties and tax revenue and make it hard for people who want to keep their family homes by earning rental income. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Smith College's Graduate School of Social Work is abandoning the term field. This includes contexts such as the phrase field work and the school's Office of Field Education. Some academics have said the term has ties to slavery that could be considered offensive. The University of Southern California made a similar announcement in January. The Celtics are now up two games to one over the 76ers in the playoff series. Last night, the Seas beat the Sixers 114 to 102. Game four is tomorrow afternoon in Philly. In Philadelphia last night, the Red Sox beat the Phillies 5 to 3. They play again tonight. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Sunny today. Highs in the low 70s. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. King Charles III has been crowned at Westminster Abbey in accord with rituals that date back more than a thousand years, but organizers made some changes to the ceremony. Even when compared to Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953, there's a shorter parade route, a recognition of faiths besides the Church of England, which the king heads, and a role for the public at large, in addition to people with titles. And Piers Lauren Freyer joins us now from near Buckingham Palace. Lauren, thanks for being with us, and tell us what you've seen today. Scott, it all started with this procession from Buckingham Palace in a gold-topped horse-drawn carriage. It's a modern one, though, with hydraulics to keep it from swaying. The king and now Queen Camilla paraded into Westminster Abbey. The king was wearing golden robes. He was presented with a golden orb and swords, even spurs, uh, like the kind you use for horses. This regalia dates back to the Knights in Shining Armor era. And he was anointed behind a canopy, and that part of the ceremony was secret. It wasn't televised on the big screens in the park behind me. And then the music. God save the king. God save the king. 
you know, the, the otherworldly voices of these boy sopranos. There was Greek Byzantine music and a coronation theme song composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber. And King Charles and now Queen Camilla have just exited the Abbey right now. What's it like where you are? Well, I'm on the edge of this park uh, where they've set up big screens for fans to watch what's happening inside the Abbey. It is still pouring rain. Um, that has not stopped royal fans, though. People like Clint Walker, he's a Royal Air Force veteran, from turning out despite the rain and despite a you know pretty dismal mood in the UK right now with an economic crisis. It's been done for hundreds of years, and it's nice that it keeps going. I know it's at difficult times, and money's money, but uh, I think it does a lot of good for the people in the end. But not everybody agrees, because just as I was interviewing royal fans, here's what it started to sound like. We were interrupted by a, pra a parade of protesters who are also undaunted by the rain. There have been several arrests this morning. Here's the thing. This coronation is costing taxpayers around $125 million. Because it's a terrible waste of money, and it's a stupid way to run a country. That's Mary Rooks, a retired medical worker. I was speaking with her. She was dressed in a yellow Abolish the Monarchy t-shirt. It's not just Charles. I mean, all his relatives, they all have palaces. So this coronation also comes at a time of waning support for the monarchy, and that's going to be a challenge for the royals going forward. What happens next today, Lauren? So the royals are just making their way back to Buckingham Palace now, sort of reversing the parade route that they took this morning. Then they will appear on the balcony of their palace and do a, a wave to the public. There is supposed to be a military flyover, unless it's rained out, because as I said, it's pouring rain here. And then that's it. Uh, that's our, the end of our glimpse of fairy tale life, uh, for today at least. Longer term, though, we're going to have to see if the royals accomplished what they hoped for with this coronation. Um, Charles was, you know, made these changes to the ceremony to try to reinvigorate the monarchy and present a sort of more humble, modern, in-touch monarchy. A lot of people, like those protesters you heard, though, think those words, you know, humble and monarchy, may be a contradiction in terms. And here's Lauren Ferrer. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you. Now back to events in the former North American colonies. And our senior editor and correspondent, Ron Elvin, joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. We are pleased to have the privilege of joining you, Scott. Gosh, that was a bad British accent. But in any event, <laughs> mine can be even worse. Listen, maybe it's all the crowns and jewels, but I'm reminded of the U.S. national debt. And this week, we learned the U.S. could default on its bonds as soon as June 1. President Biden has called a meeting for next week with both party leaders of the House and Senate. What's behind this? The Republican strategy had been to make this a mano a mano match between Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Uh, that would elevate McCarthy and highlight the bill the House has narrowly already approved. And that bill, as we know, would uh, raise the debt limit but make it contingent on certain cuts to the federal budget that please Republicans. So what we saw in this Biden invitation to all four is a little bit of the power of the White House to stack the deck a bit in the president's favor by including the two Democratic leaders and Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who has made mm -hmm. statements about the importance of the debt limit, even though he does support Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Biden gets three people in that meeting who agree with him on the urgent need to raise the limit. So McCarthy sees the world differently. He has to. Otherwise, he wouldn't be speaker. 
There's a hardcore element in his caucus that's less interested in the debt limit than in rewriting the federal budget, slashing social spending, and highlighting these issues in 2024. And judging by the email I'm getting these days, Scott, they're also interested in all of those things for their potential as fundraising tools. Now, the revelation this week about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, ProPublica reports uh, real estate magnate paid the private school tuition for a youngster that the justice was raising uh, like a son. How much worse does this look like other favors that Thomas received from uh, Harlan Crow? It's not so much that it's worse. It's that it's just another instance of Thomas getting something of impressive value and choosing not to disclose. So this story says a friend of Thomas confirmed that Crow paid for a year at one boarding school and another year at another. Uh, Previous reports were that Thomas had traveled on Crow's yacht and his jet, with none of it disclosed on the court's annual disclosure forms. So Thomas said Crow is a friend, and those trips didn't need to be disclosed. This time Thomas hasn't responded directly, but a friend of his said the boy wasn't Thomas's dependent child and didn't need to be disclosed. And also on the court, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch, Gorsuch, uh, liberal and conservative respectively, have together received millions of dollars from Penguin Random House, uh, which has published their books and which has had important business before the court. The justices in both those cases disclosed that income, unlike Thomas, but the two of them did not recuse themselves and uh, from decisions affecting their publisher, So in that sense, they are suspect as Thomas is suspect. And these examples fuel the fire that's burning under Chief Justice John Roberts and the entire court. The Senate is now considering putting its weight behind having the court adopt an ethics code comparable to that of other courts and federal employees. And Ron, four uh, members of the group Proud Boys, including the former leader, have just been found guilty of sedition for the part they played in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. It's been 28 months since that day. How effective has the Justice Department been in holding rioters accountable? There have been a lot of people charged so far. More than 450 have been sentenced, uh, about half of those getting some time behind bars in their sentence. It's all gone very slowly, but that is Attorney General Merrick Garland's style. It's the old wheels of justice grind slowly motif. And one suspects that had all this gone much faster, it would have strengthened claims that the entire investigation was partisan. It is notable that some of those convicted, like Enrique Tarrio of the Proud Boys, were not even present at the Capitol on January 6th. That suggests prosecutors are looking for instigators as well as people caught in the act. That could be a bad precedent for some people in Trump's inner circle, possibly including the man at the epicenter of that circle. NPR's Ron Elvin. All right, I'll try my own. Uh, Right. Thank you, Ron, so much. Thank you, Scott. (laughs) Britain's royal family cost taxpayers about 102 million pounds or 130 million U.S. dollars last year, according to the accounting paperwork for the Sovereign Grant, which funds their official expenses. Some might argue that money could be spent on health care, road repair, or buying every British citizen a chip buddy. But economists estimate the royals actually bring in more money into Britain's economy than they cost in tourism, admission fees, and gift shop sales like little corgi-shaped refrigerator magnets. Americans had a revolution to be free of the British monarchy and imperialism, but joined much of the rest of the world in following the royals' escapades, scandals, romances, and feuds. 
The ascension of King Charles III revived critiques of the British Empire's troubling history, but the royal family also received extraordinary outpourings of regard for Queen Elizabeth II when she died last year, and for Princess Diana in 1997. Of course, in the 21st century, royalty is all nonsense. Max Hastings, the British historian, wrote this week for Bloomberg Opinion, but it is relatively harmless nonsense that gives pleasure to many people. A recent YouGov poll commissioned by the BBC showed 58% of Britons favor keeping the monarchy. You can imagine what leaders Max Hastings had in mind as he wrote this week. There is no rational case for having a hereditary head of state, yet wherever we look around the world at elected presidents, we thank our stars for denying such people the role of head of state in our own polity. British monarchs have little actual power, and Britain's parliament could approve a referendum to abolish even that. I think the UK has another way to keep monarchy in check, whatever its absurdities and crimes. It's the sense of humor Britons turn on themselves. From Jonathan Swift and Gilbert and Sullivan to Eddie Izzard, it's Tracy Ullman, Sasha Baron Cohen, and Amy Hoggart satirizing royals, Monty Python's skits about upper-class twits, and Charles Dickens writing in A Tale of Two Cities, there was a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. All japes delivered without fear that anyone who jibes at royals will be pushed from a window or imprisoned. In fact, some British comics even get knighted. God save the clowns. And we'll never be royals. It's a one in our blood. That kind of love's just ain't for us. We crave a different kind of buzz. Let me be your ruler. Right. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Browdy. It is 818 and coming up in about 20 minutes, Colorado's passed the nation's first right to repair law for farm equipment. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, WorcesterArt.org. Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And the Lyric Stage with Sister Act, and then there were nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Sunny today, highs in the low 70s, lows in the low 50s overnight. Mostly sunny tomorrow. Sunday's temperatures reaching the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Large crowds are in London today. King Charles III and his wife Camilla were formally crowned king and queen during a ceremony at Westminster Abbey, attended by more than 2,000 guests. About 100 heads of state and other dignitaries were there, including First Lady Jill Biden. California's Reparations Task Force is expected to vote today on recommendations for a formal apology for slavery and discrimination against black people. The recommendations include an aid agency to provide services to the descendants of enslaved people and financial compensation. And lawyers for the U.S. Marine who put a homeless man in a, fa- in a fatal chokehold on a New York City subway train on Monday say he never intended to harm the man. Protesters are calling for the Marine's arrest. I'm Giles Snyder. 
NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Woody Guthrie Prize will be given tonight to artists who work in the tradition of the singer and songwriter who called himself a commonist. Joan Baez, Bruce Springsteen, Mavis Staples are among previous recipients. This year, the prize is being given to the Russian feminist collective and performance art group known as Pussy Riot. From their 2017 song, Police State, Masha Olehina and Nadia Dolokunikova will accept the award. And Nadia Dolokunikova joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So you sang a song at Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior Church in 2012. What was the song? It was called Virgin Mary, Please Get Rid of Putin. And how long did you spend in prison for that? I spent two years in jail. Why did you sing it? You must have known it would create a problem for some people. Um, it was important for me to act, and I never really thought about consequences. Fear paralyzes you, and fear calls autocracies together. If you refuse to fear, then autocracies do not have a chance. You're on the government's most wanted list now for raising money to support Ukraine. Are you worried about your safety? <laughs> I'm not, but people around me are worried. You're right, it is partly because I raised money for Ukraine. I think it's mostly because of the art show that's called Putin's Ashes that was done in Jeffrey Deitch Gallery in Los Angeles earlier this year. We burn giant Putin's portrait, collect the ashes, and make art pieces with uh, those ashes. I gather you ran away from your home in Siberia to Moscow when you were 16 and had some tough years. What moved you to help start what's now called Pussy Riot? So prior to Pussy Riot, I had experience of five years of political performance art. And closer to 2011, became obvious to me that I need to speak loudly about my values so I had to stand up for mm -hmm. LGBTQ plus rights, for feminism. And with that goal, we started Pussy Riot. And everything you say rubs Putin the wrong way? It's not just us. In general, if you're an activist in Russia, it's uh, fairly challenging. And it's been getting worse and worse uh, in the recent years. Vladimir mm -hmm. Karamurza just got locked up for 25 years for just publicly condemning yeah. the war in Ukraine, Putin's regime. My friend Alexei Navalny is in jail for years and he's facing pretty much life in jail. Yeah. 
I want to ask you, you, you gave some remarks in Vancouver on April 26, where you addressed President Putin directly. What did you tell him? What did you want to say to him? I told him that the Kremlin walls became his prison walls, that he already lost in spirit. That's why he is afraid that the free world is on the side of Ukraine. The whole world really is on the side of brave people of Ukraine. I recently had occasion to look this up. Vladimir Putin was re-elected president of Russia in 2018 with 77% of the vote. He's pretty popular, isn't he? <laughs> you know, polls exist for democracy. Elections exist only in democratic societies. Everything else yeah. is just cruel political theater that has no actual value and completely illegitimate. Mm -hmm. May I ask, being on the government's most wanted list, do you think in terms of the future? I obsess about future a lot. I think it's really important to have positive vision of the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to maintain this sense of hope, or not even hope, but knowledge. I know that the beautiful Russia of the future is possible because we are here and we are going to fight for it. It's not going to be easy, but nobody promised us that life is going to be easy. Well, congratulations. <laughs> You uh, you were receiving a very distinguished award. Thank you. Nadia Tolokunikova of Pussy Riot, who will receive the Woody Guthrie Award tonight in Oklahoma. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Amazon launched a low-cost healthcare service last year to provide virtual care for more than 20 common health conditions, including allergies or acne. But as Jeffrey Fowler reported this week in the Washington Post, the service called Amazon Clinic comes with a hidden cost, your privacy. Jeffrey Fowler joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. You bet. A reader asked, you signed up. What did you find out? Before you're allowed to officially become a patient of Amazon Clinic, they make you click one of those little buttons that says continue or I agree. And there's a whole bunch of legalese um, that you're agreeing to there. At the top, it says a HIPAA authorization. And I think a lot of listeners, anybody who's been to a doctor's office in the last couple of decades might think, oh yes, yes, HIPAA, that's normal. But this case turns out to be different. What Amazon is asking patients to do is to essentially give up some of their federally protected privacy rights. And that really should raise the eyebrows of anybody who wants to understand what big tech is doing getting into healthcare. I, I, I gather they said it indicated uh, your information, quote, may be redisclosed. What does that mean? It means that Amazon is essentially uh, grabbing the right to take your data and give it to itself and then do we don't know exactly what with. Sell you something, I'm assuming. Uh, possibly, yeah. Part of the problem here is Amazon's language about what it is doing with this data and why it wants it is extremely vague. So, for example, Amazon has a giant retail business. It now has a pharmacy business. It has a really big advertising business that we don't talk a lot about. Amazon also has other kinds of healthcare businesses it wants to get into. It's increasingly getting into artificial intelligence. It could take our data and analyze it and try to predict 
risk scores about different kinds of people. So there's a lot of potential uses for our data, which are usually off limits to healthcare providers. We, we should, of course, note that Amazon is, is among uh, NPR's underwriters. I believe they have a small relationship with the Washington Post, too. The Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, who is the founder of Amazon. But uh, I am the tech columnist at the Post, and I review all tech with the same critical eye. Is this legal, what Amazon is doing? When I talked to uh, lawyers and privacy advocates, they said um, it's up for debate. There are two issues, really, that could come up. First of all, uh, the law says you are not allowed to ask somebody to sign away their HIPAA rights as a requirement of getting service. In this case, um, Amazon says if you don't click that agree button, you can't really become their customer. Instead, they tell you, here's some contact information for uh, clinics uh, that are our partners, and they'll treat you if you arrange it directly. So I tried to do that, and getting the exact same treatment that normally would have cost me 30 bucks through Amazon Clinic was going to be over 100 going directly. So that hardly seems like a comparable service offering. The other question here is, and this is one that would be in front of an organization like the Federal Trade Commission, you know, are consumers really informed about what they're doing in this case? Is Amazon essentially misleading people and making them think that, uh, you know, that they are covered by HIPAA? I mean, their, their website for Amazon Clinic uh, makes lots of promises about HIPAA, but then asks you to sign a document that says you're no longer covered by HIPAA. When you contacted Amazon, what did they say about your reporting? Amazon says that uh, it only needs this authorization because of a peculiarity about its role in the healthcare process, that it is not the doctor itself. It is merely a, a marketplace for doctors, and uh, it wants this data so that it can better serve its customers. That said, the language that they use in the authorization, it is worryingly vague and gives Amazon a lot of potential power to do stuff with our data in the future. So that's why I think it's worth raising the alarm. Jeffrey Fowler, technology columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks so much. Thank you. There's a small zoo inside the sprawling Pakistani city of Karachi, and inside of that zoo, until recently, there was an elephant. Her demise, like her life, captivated Pakistan and became a symbol of something more. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. I'm standing in the enclosure that belongs to Noor Jahan, the African bush elephant, and she's lying on her side, propped up by a mound of sand underneath the only tree in her enclosure. Noor Jahan, the elephant, is only 17. She should be in her prime, but a mysterious accident left her dragging herself about on her two front legs. She was left untreated until animal rights activists raised the alarm on social media. Then, in mid-April, she fell into her concrete pool. She had to be winched out with a crane. Vets say she's dying. Volunteer Jude Allen tries to keep her spirits up, coaxing her to eat some sugar cane. Come, you can eat it. My baby girl, yes. You can do this, come on, come on, yes, yes, yes. Good girl, good girl, yay! Noor Jahan's health was big news here. We have a health update about Noor Jahan, the elephant. Yes. In fact, 
She's always been big news. When Noor Jahan first arrived as a plump toddler nearly 15 years ago, Pakistanis flocked to see her. As a nod to the attention she attracted, zoo officials even named her after a beloved Pakistani diva, Noor Jahan, who crooned tunes like this. But volunteers say her life has been anything but glamorous. She was poached from her herd in Tanzania alongside three other baby elephants. Since her capture, Nora Jahan has lived in an enclosure near a busy road, her only company, a fellow captive elephant, Madubala. An activist with the Pakistan Animal Welfare Society, Mahira Omar, shows me the concrete shed where the two used to sleep. They have been chained while they sleep for many years. I don't know how one can sleep if, you know, your three legs are like chained, two in front and one at the back. Details like this captivated many, and it sparked a conversation about how the widespread abuse of animals in Pakistan reflects a broader malaise. It comes from such a deep-seated frustration and the ability to strike at something which is weaker than you, whether you're a woman or a child or a defenceless animal or anything, really. Alia Chugtai is a journalist and social commentator in Karachi. She's not the only one who's been reflecting on this. Back in Noor Jahan's enclosure, another volunteer helping to feed and bathe Noor Jahan tells me... Noor Jahan has become a symbol. She's become a symbol of the state of our own country. She has been caged, starved, abused, exploited, and this is the state of Pakistan. Zulfikar Ali Bhutto is the grandson and nephew of two prime ministers. He refers to the political deadlock in Pakistan, which has unraveled the economy, pushing up food prices and pushing millions into hunger. People are starving. There was a stampede recently for flour that killed 16 people. The animals in this zoo are a part of this system. It's an interconnected system. Noor Jahan is the struggle of the Pakistani people. Days after we see Noor Jahan, she develops a raging fever and dies. Under pressure, zoo officials promise to shift her enclosure mate, the elephant Madubala, to a safari park. The government orders an investigation into zoo conditions. And activists hope and wait to see if Noor Jahan's death will prompt a broader reckoning on how the country treats its vulnerable, or whether, like so many downtrodden in Pakistan, her demise will be quickly forgotten. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Karachi. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. When today's high-tech farm equipment breaks down, it can be expensive and time-consuming to get it fixed. Farmers and ranchers would be happy to do their own repairs, except they often don't have the tools and manuals they need. Last week, Colorado's Governor Jared Polis signed a first-of-its-kind law in the country to change that. Here's reporter Lucas Brady-Woods of member station KUNC. A few miles from the Nebraska border on Colorado's eastern plains, Danny Wood's family has been growing wheat, corn, and other grains for generations. Wood relies on rain to water his crops instead of irrigation, which means planting has to be carefully timed. If you don't get your crop planted or you lose in a hailstorm, 
It's just devastation because you don't go to work and get a paycheck. There went your paycheck. Wood has over a million dollars worth of farm equipment like tractors, planters, and combine harvesters to manage his 8,000 acres of crops. He bought his computerized tractor just over a year ago. This is the one that caused the problems. The massive red vehicle is controlled by touchscreen monitors. When it broke down, he had to wait four days for an authorized technician to come fix it at a cost of nearly $10,000. We tried everything, couldn't get it to work. So we just waited for them to come and he put that code in. If they would have just told us the code, we could have put it in ourselves. Wood's experience is far from unique. Farmers and ranchers across the country can't fix their equipment because manufacturers don't give them access to the specialized tools and technical manuals to do so. Even simple repairs can't be done. But Colorado's new law guarantees the right to repair one's own agriculture equipment. It requires manufacturers to hand over parts, software, instructions, and other necessary tools. State Representative Brianna Titone helped write Colorado's law. This puts them in that category of being able to have the, the, the latest, greatest equipment and be able to stay on top of their repairs and keep moving and keep the production going and producing more stuff to grow and, and feed our communities. That's a good thing. Other states have tried and failed to pass similar legislation. The head of the National Farmers Union, Rob LaRue, says that's mostly because lawmakers don't understand the problem. To him, it's an individual rights issue. If we think about it as our car or our phone or something like that, we have this idea that you know, this is our property, right? Farmers are very independent. They feel the exact same way uh, about their equipment that they've made an incredible investment in. Manufacturing trade groups have fought bills that allow user repairs. Joni Wolfel is the president of the Far West Equipment Dealers Association, which represents agriculture equipment dealers across the Western U.S. She says the industry has put a lot of time and money into training technicians. They want to take everything that the industry has done all the investment that they've made in their employees, and they want you to hand it over to them. And that's what that law tries to do. Wolfel says farmers and ranchers often have to wait days for a technician to show up because there aren't enough to go around. Danny Wood, back in Northeast Colorado, says the new state law will help take some pressure off the technicians. They're, they're gonna have plenty of service. And when it takes five days for them to come look at your combine and three days for them to come back and look at your tractor, they're overbooked anyway, so they need some other help. He just wants farmers like himself to be able to fix what they can when they need to so they can successfully plant and harvest their crops. For NPR News, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Peets, Colorado. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Christmas tree shops are open this morning, although the company has filed for bankruptcy protection. Handel Holding says it took action to strengthen the company and says it hopes to emerge from Chapter 11 by the end of the summer. It also announced it plans to close 10 stores in the chain. The Christmas Tree Shops chain is based in Middleborough. The original retail location opened in Yarmouthport in the 1950s. 
The Worcester Teachers Union has passed a no-confidence vote against the city school committee and other city leaders. Hours before the vote, the school committee said it was requesting a state mediator to settle contract negotiations. The union's president said she was not aware about that request in advance. Negotiations have been underway for more than a year. The Worcester Teachers Union is asking for wage increases and improved working conditions. It is 56 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today. Highs in the low 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Zachary Logan, Remembrance, featuring drawings and sculpture that use the language of flowers to meditate on the nature of life, death, and rebirth, Canadian artist Zachary Logan unlocks new ways of understanding nature and ourselves. Closes May 7th. Tickets at PEM.org. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide, provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Salvador, Brazil is often called the cradle of Afro-Brazilian culture. A top Biden administration official visited the city this past week to discuss diversity with a member of the Brazilian cabinet. NPR's Michelle Kellerman takes us there. Well, as you can see, you know, it's a beautiful city with so much history, culture, music. Shouting over the drummers, tour guide Fernando Bingri is showing U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield a main square in Salvador. It was here where slaves were once tied up on poles and whipped in public. And it was here where Michael Jackson made his music video, They Don't Care About Us. Thomas Greenfield came here to revive a racial equity program with Brazil that was first launched 15 years ago by then-Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Brazil's new Minister of Racial Equality, Aniele Franco, says the new government is focused on this. She says the fact that President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva elevated the Office on Racial Equity to be a government ministry is proof that this is a new Brazil. Franco describes the most recent elections as a division between barbarism and democracy, hate and combating fascism. She blasted the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, for one saying that he would prefer a dead son than one who would date a black girl. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield says the U.S. and Brazil have a lot in common, especially when it comes to race relations. In the United States, we say black lives matter because they do. In Brazil, you say, don't kill me, kill racism, because we should. 
The ambassador made it personal, talking about her own life growing up in segregated Louisiana. Unfortunately, like so many, I have been subjected to racism all my life. Every single place I've been, all around the world. Now she represents the U.S. on the world stage at the United Nations and says she wants to work with countries like Brazil to fight racism. This was her first time in Brazil, though she seemed to feel at home, drumming along with young performers from the Alodun Creative School and dancing in the streets. She says it felt a lot like New Orleans. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Salvador, Brazil. Huh? What? I think you got the wrong show, right? Can't be time for the puzzle, huh? It's only Saturday! Okay, look, this is just promo copy. If you've spent most of your life studying and creating word games, well, lucky you. If you've been the New York Times crossword editor for the last three decades and Weekend Edition's puzzle master for even longer, do you think you'd have a favorite word? Well, as a matter of fact, Will Shorts does. You can find out tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha by listening live at this station's website or on NPR.org. Kristen Mungiu's new film opens during the holiday season in a village in Transylvania, from which many of the local Romanian and ethnically Hungarian residents have gone to Germany and elsewhere in the European Union to earn better wages, and to which people from Sri Lanka have come to work because the local bakery needs enough employees to qualify for an EU grant. Locals force the three Sri Lankans who come to a church service to leave. Priest tells his parishioners, but they're all God's children. Parishioner replies, they can be God's children back home. Somebody adds, why don't they hire our own folks? RMN is the new film written and directed by the Romanian filmmaker who won the Palme d'Or at the 2007 Cannes Film Festival. It stars Marine Gregori, Judith State, and Macrina Barlidano. Christian Mungiu joins us from Bucharest. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. What moved you to tell a story like this right now? Well, I think that it's not just a story about a Transylvanian village. And by the way, Transylvania is just a part of Romania with no vampires. I think it's the story of the world somehow. It's a snapshot about the situation of what we live today in a lot of senses. First of all, starting with this anxiety that people experience in general about uh, the future. And this anxiety probably triggers a sort of um, attitude towards the others, and especially the others who we do not identify as being part of our tribe. And we see this happening in different forms in all the countries. We see that uh, once uh, the globalization allowed people to move uh, freely, more or less, on the planet, that generated a lot of um, responses, a lot of effects. And I think that there is too big a gap between what people say in public and what they believe. 
um, when they are just by themselves. And this is kind of, you know, somehow a collateral effect of this political correctness, which taught people that you are not allowed to say this or that, but uh, it didn't change what they believe. Many of the villagers are ethnically Hungarian. They're not particularly welcoming to these three Sri Lankan, just three Sri Lankans who've arrived. But help us understand why they feel they have been the victims of discrimination in the past. Yes. Transylvania is primarily a territory which is being disputed for years between Romania and Hungary, a territory which passed from one country to the other. And uh, it's not nice, but uh, any time when uh, the other country had the territory, they were trying to impose their point of view and to discriminate the minority. It happened both ways. The situation is better now because uh, because of the European Union, to be honest. That was the solution finally here in Europe. The borders are not that important any longer. But traditionally, this doesn't change deep down in people immediately. Uh, and what hasn't changed is their idea that they need to preserve their community enclosed the way it was so that they survived for so many years. Let me ask you about what a lot of critics have, have noted as just an extraordinary scene, almost like out of an old master's painting. Community meeting, hundreds of villagers speak out. The camera never moves. Uh, the scene runs about 15 minutes. How do you direct so many people at one time and get them all to talk when they should, in the language they should, and interact and bounce off each other and not miss a beat? Um, you know what matters for me is the result. It's very difficult to get there, but what matters is the result. I mean, I want my films to be as close to reality as possible and as, let's say, objective as possible. And if you observe reality, there are no cuts in reality. There is no editing. So the thing that I'm trying to, to mimic in the films is to identify a way of uh, staging the situations in which you can follow them as a spectator uh, from your single own point of view without me as a director telling you what's important, what's not important, and cutting out what's not important. To get there, that's a different thing, and it's a very difficult process in the sense that everybody needs uh, to know precisely what he has to say, when he has to say, and little by little, at what temperature he needs to deliver his, uh, his lines. Are the people in that meeting, Romanians and Romanians of Hungarian extraction, do they feel they're being lectured to by the European Union, in a sense? I think that at times... Yes, they feel that uh, from this very distant and imprecise place, there are a lot of uh, very good ideas coming. But uh, these, these kind of ideas who work wonderful theoretically, but uh, on the ground, the situation is always a bit more complicated. From, uh, from what you know of the United States, is this a film that needs to be seen here now too? I think that uh, in the United States as well, I think there are a lot of conflicts which are quite similar to what uh, you can see in this film. Uh, we can see that this populism, which is, uh, is becoming uh, more and more present in the lives of people lately, 
as you can see in the film, this community had kind of a so-called democratic decision in the sense that the majority wanted something, but the majority was very manipulated and working on a lot of stereotypes and cliches. And this is why I think that it's very important to engage into a real conversation. It's a big danger because as you can see for all the elections in the last years, uh, all these people who understood uh, what political correctness is and what they're allowed or not allowed to say in public, whenever they have the freedom to vote, will more and more bring to power, um, you know, kind of unreasonable people fighting against a lot of uh, humanistic values which were uh, acquired in years and years of, of education and struggle. And um, I think we need to do something about this. Christian Munju. His film, RMN, in theaters now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. For the past seven years, Duran Jones and the Indications have made a name for themselves as modern ambassadors of R&B and soul music. Now, frontman Duran Jones has come out with his first solo album, and it is heavily inspired by his upbringing in the rural South. NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento talked to him about it. When Duran Jones approached his label about making a solo album, he didn't describe what it would sound like. Rather, it would smell like zesty magnolias on a hot July day in Louisiana. Like the summers in Hillaryville, Louisiana, where Jones grew up. When asking my grand what was it like when she first moved to Hillaryville, her reply was always the same. The place you'd most want to live. Jones's childhood largely played out in the church, where he sang with the choir and lived in his dad's trailer. But Hillaryville changed from how his grandmother remembered it. Jones says that the war on drugs and a nearby state highway cutting through turned the town into a much more desolate place. His generation had one goal, to get out of Hillaryville. In 2012, Jones moved to Bloomington, Indiana, to study classical music. While there, he started his band, Duran Jones and the Indications. really felt like the fans only knew parts of me and I wanted to be transparent and vulnerable in a way that I haven't been before. That meant returning home, both musically and spiritually. Whenever I went back to Hillaryville as a grown man and went back to church and saw that they weren't doing the lining hymns anymore, it really broke my heart. Wait Till I Get Over, Jones's debut solo album, recreates those sounds of his childhood. In the title track, he layers his voice over and over. And Jones opens up about other key experiences that shaped him, like an early romance. The emotions of that song stay with me so long because that was the first intimate relationship that I had with another man. This song, That Feeling, marks the first time Jones has publicly addressed his sexuality. In the music video, two men encounter each other as adults and slowly remember the tender love they shared and hid as teenagers. 
I felt the need to like really just be open about my bisexuality because I know how stigmatized it can be for a queer young person in the rural South. To find that feeling, to find that feeling. I knew that the process of making this song, this record would be emotional, but I didn't realize how gratifying and therapeutic this has become for me as well. Wait Till I Get Over paints a deeply nuanced portrait of Jones's life and of the Southern customs that raised him. To translate that sonically, co-producer Ben Lemsdane says he leaned on recording techniques that created a blend of traditional and modern sounds on the record. Perhaps most importantly, the whole band recorded everything live. Oh, my mama couldn't tell me about the feeling I feel And I'm 49 on a Sunday morning still those are scratch vocals. I didn't even set the mic up very well. And so it's like distorting, and but it was just like too powerful to not use. This album is the rawest look at Duran Jones yet. For the record's visuals, he posed for photos in front of his dad's trailer in Hillaryville. The 17-year-old Duran was so embarrassed and ashamed of living there, being from there. The trailer burned down shortly after his last visit. Jones sees it as a symbol that there are brighter days ahead. But he's proud now to show the world where he comes from. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 56 degrees in Boston. Plenty of sunshine today. Highs in the low 70s. I'm Jeff Cohen, WBUR's managing producer for local news. My mother's name was Judy. She died seven years ago. One of the things I miss most about her is her voice. Luckily, she called me every day, and she left me lots of messages to tell me she was proud. So excited. Call us when you have time. Or mad. You have time to play on Facebook, but you won't answer your mother's phone call. And the obvious. I love you. Kiss the girls. Don't make them cry. Bye. Mom had no idea how much these voicemails would mean. Little gifts that she left me for later, like a letter lost in the mail that suddenly delivered. They're bits of audio and love that remind me of the power of both. 
If you love the power of radio and you're looking to celebrate your mom or anyone else this Mother's Day, consider sending Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll be supporting storytelling and the power of the human voice. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org and thanks. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, how so many people WFHing has hurt regional banks. A rumor and misinformation complicates life at the U.S.-Mexico border. A funeral in Ukraine for an American who volunteered and gave his life. A writer tries to uncover stories he never heard from his grandfather. And Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins on songwriting while you snooze. It doesn't happen to me often, but it, it has happened. Where I'll dream a song that I have not yet written and I'll wake up with a completely three-dimensional song in my head. I wish it happened to all the songs, kind of a one in a zillion thing. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, May 6, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. King Charles III and his wife, Queen Camilla, are back at Buckingham Palace following today's coronation ceremony. Britain's newest monarch crowned at Westminster Abbey. NPR's Amy Held reports the coronation mixed modernity with ancient pomp and circumstance. Archbishop of Canterbury Justin Welby conducted the ceremony crowning Charles. The coronation oath has stood for centuries and is enshrined in law. Are you willing to take the oath? I am willing. But most British youth are not willing to embrace the monarchy, according to polling. And today's gold and jewel-laden pageantry aimed for inclusivity, with the people invited to pay homage. I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your People of color and religions outside the Church of England were also incorporated. Britain's first Hindu Prime Minister Rishi Sunak did a reading. Understanding. Prince Harry, who quit his royal duties, was there alongside the heir apparent, Prince William, and his son, Prince George. Amy Held, NPR News. Crowds came out in the London rain to watch the proceedings, but not everyone was there to greet King Charles. The anti-monarchy group Republic says several of its members were arrested as they prepared to protest the coronation, including the group's leader, Graham Smith. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia are welcoming talks between Sudan's warring factions, the Sudanese army, and the paramilitary rapid support forces beginning negotiations today in the Saudi city of Jeddah. Several ceasefires have been violated since the conflict broke out last month. Hundreds of people have been killed and thousands have been wounded. A video recording of former President Donald Trump answering questions about rape allegations against him has been made public. NPR's Dave Mistich reports attorneys for former advice columnist E. Jean Carroll played the video for jurors in her defamation suit against Trump. In video from an October 2022 deposition, Trump repeated a line he's lobbed against E. Jean Carroll to deny the allegations. The only difference between me and other people is I'm honest. She's not my type. I take it the three women you've married are all your type. Yeah. Later in the video, Trump misidentifies Carol as his ex-wife Marla Maples. 
Carol claims Trump raped her in a New York luxury department store dressing room in the mid-90s. After Trump called Carol a liar and the allegations a hoax in a social media post, she brought a defamation case against him. With attorneys for both Trump and Carol resting their cases, closing arguments are expected to take place on Monday. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Russia is blaming Ukraine and the West for a car bombing today that wounded a prominent Russian nationalist rider and killed his driver. The foreign ministry says the attack was a direct responsibility of the U.S. and Britain, but provided no evidence to back up the claim. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Christmas tree shops are open this morning. Despite the company filing for bankruptcy protection, Handle Holdings says it took action yesterday to strengthen the discount store chain that's based in Massachusetts. And the company says it hopes to emerge from Chapter 11 by the end of the summer. The company also announced plans to close 10 stores. It says many employees will be offered jobs in other locations. The Worcester Teachers Union has passed a no-confidence vote against the city's school committee and other city leaders. This comes hours after the school committee said it was requesting a state mediator to settle contract negotiations. The union's president said she was not aware about that request in advance. The two parties have been in negotiations for more than a year. The Worcester Teachers Union is asking for wage increases and improved working conditions. Pembroke Police and the State Department of Children and Families are investigating after a teacher brought a cannabis-infused edible to school. The Pembroke School Superintendent said in a letter to families that a student at Hobomock Elementary School took the edible from the paraprofessional's backpack yesterday. The child was transported to South Shore Hospital for evaluation, although school officials say they don't think the child ate the edible. The staffer has been placed on leave. More than 50 local artists are gathering in Brookline today for the town's annual Open Studios event. People can shop for paintings, jewelry, bowls, bags, and more. The event runs from 11 to 5 at the Brookline Arts Center. It is 58 degrees in Boston. Sunny skies today and highs reaching the low 70s. Lows in the low 50s tonight. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Sunday and highs in the mid-70s. This is 90.9. WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for joining us. This week ends with good news about the U.S. jobs market. The economy added more than a quarter million jobs in April. The unemployment rate matched its lowest level in 54 years. What's the bad news? Well, many people are still working from home. What's bad about that? Offices are sitting empty. Companies are giving up their leases, and that can be trouble for banks, especially regional ones. NPR's Zara Zurezvani joins us. Thanks so much for being with us. It's good to be with you. 
How are we defining the number of offices that are, what's the phrase, sitting empty? Well, with so much remote work still going, the typical office building has about half the number of people they normally do. And so companies against this backdrop of high inflation, climbing interest rates, and tightening credit from recent banking turmoil, they're shedding a lot of office space. The commercial real estate firm Cushman and Wakefield estimates that almost 20% of office spaces are vacant across the country right now. And that's a real milestone. It's greater than what we saw during the 2008 recession. And in some cities, the vacancy rate is much worse than that. In San Francisco, for example, where a lot of tech companies have really embraced remote work, the vacancy rate there right now is about 30%, which is a big problem for banks. Why banks in particular, in in addition to real estate companies? Well, if companies continue to give up their leases, analysts worry that those who own these office spaces won't be able to collect rent and make good on their loans from the banks. Many of those loans are coming due this year and next year. And for building owners to refinance now when interest rates are so much higher than when they took those loans out initially, you know, they're going to feel the squeeze. I asked Kenneth Rosen, chair of the real estate research firm Rosen Consulting Group, about this, and he didn't beat around the bush. I'd say the number one implication is going to be defaults and foreclosures. Now, here's the thing about defaulting on those loans. The bulk of the $1.2 trillion in outstanding office space debt, it's owed to smaller regional banks, which, as we know, have been in the throes of some turmoil lately. Here again is Rosen on that point. Regional banks, they may face, again, issues uh, where their capital will be eroded by these losses that may make them not as profitable or even not viable. So upshot is these regional banks are very exposed to swings in the office space sector and could take a real hit should offices remain empty. The way you explain it, uh, Arizu, they're really vulnerable right now. Yeah, that is true. I mean, analysts are talking about this as possibly being the next shoe to drop. Could this fallout go beyond banking? Well, you know, it certainly seems like the era of hybrid work is here to stay. Workers and employers have adjusted, and with so much economic uncertainty, companies appear reluctant to declare a full-bore return to the office anytime soon. Now, because of this, uh, we may continue to see high vacancy rates that have already altered the ecosystems of cities. I talked to a longtime owner of a shoe repair shop here in downtown Los Angeles the other day in the financial district. His customers have long been lawyers or consultants who used to work in some of these corporate buildings. Because so many of them still work from home, it's taken a huge bite out of his business, and he's not sure he'll survive much longer. Many convenience stores, dry cleaners, restaurants, they're in the same boat because this return to the office everyone assumed was coming hasn't really come. NPR's Arazu Rezvani, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Pandemic restrictions along the U.S.-Mexico border will be lifted next week, and that has led to a lot of misinformation on social media, sometimes spread by smugglers who stand to profit. NPR's Jill Rose reports that government officials, as well as Immigrant advocates are trying to dispel the rumors. If you talk to migrants at Espacio Migrante, a shelter in Tijuana, they know that something is coming. 
they don't know exactly what. We heard that there's going to be big crowds at the border. And we also heard that they're going to start deporting more undocumented people who are already in the U.S. Maria Areces is from Guatemala. She fled with her family seven months ago after she says they were threatened by a gang that was trying to extort their business. Areces has been trying to get an appointment to seek asylum through the CBP-1 app. But she heard a rumor that the U.S. government may stop using it. I heard that things are going to get harder for people like me. Some say they're going to take away that CPB-1 option. Others say it will continue. And if they take that away, what are we going to do? Where are we going to be able to apply? The truth is, we don't know what to think. To be clear, that rumor is false. The U.S. government is not taking CBP-1 away. In fact, it's going to add more appointments for migrants to make asylum claims at the border. But the confusion is typical. The pandemic border restrictions, known as Title 42, are set to lift in less than a week. Shelter operators and immigrant advocates all along the border say they're fighting a constant battle against rumors and misinformation, and they're not always winning. Paulina Olvera Cañez is the founder and director of Espacio Migrante. There's not a lot of information available for asylum seekers or even for organizations like ours, for shelters based in Mexico. And what we see that happens is that people take advantage of asylum seekers. It's not that U.S. immigration authorities aren't trying. Homeland Security officials posted videos last month in Spanish and English explaining how the U.S. immigration system works. Do not believe smugglers who just want to make a profit. And Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has held several press conferences trying to encourage migrants to seek asylum through new legal pathways and not cross the border illegally when Title 42 lifts, including yesterday in South Texas. The smugglers who exploit migrants are spreading false information, lies in a way to lure vulnerable people to the southern border. But immigrant advocates say those messages don't always land. Rocio Melendez-Dominguez is the Mexico country director for HIAS, a U.S.-based refugee agency. Melendez lives in Juarez, Mexico, just across the border from El Paso. We are seeing a lot of misinformation and rumors about the, the border will be open after May 11. What's the source of that? Like, where do you see this? In everywhere, like Facebook groups, in chats, in TikTok. Melendez says sometimes false information is spread deliberately by smugglers who stand to profit off of migrants. But often it's spread by trusted messengers, friends or relatives on social media who just don't understand what's happening. Sometimes it's like they misunderstood some news and people choose to believe in what sounds better, you know, uh, in what gave them hope. Melendez says she tries to give migrants good information about what will happen if they cross the border illegally. But when people are desperate, it can be hard for them to hear. Joel Rose, NPR News. Thousands of lives have been lost in the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut in the past few months as Russia has pushed Ukrainian forces into a smaller and smaller area. One of those lives was of an American who had volunteered to fight on behalf of Ukraine. And Pierre's Julian Haida attended his funeral in Kyiv and has this report. An honor guard plays Ukraine's national anthem as six soldiers carry the hexagonal coffin of Christopher James Campbell. 
couple dozen people are gathered here to say their last goodbyes to Campbell, a 27-year-old Florida native who went to fight on behalf of Ukraine last spring. On one side of the coffin, Ukrainian soldiers hold flags. There's a red, white, and blue wreath. And on the other side, there's a priest, an iPhone on a tripod, and Campbell's fiance, Eva Sanina. Thousands of miles away in Florida, Campbell's family watches through the iPhone lens as Sanina receives a flag, a certificate of gratitude, and a beret. Slava Ukraini! Glory to the heroes, she shouts through her tears. She motions to an assembly of masked men in fatigues, American, Georgian, Czech, and other flags sewn onto their sleeves, and thanks them. They're brave sons of Ukraine who did everything to prevent people like me from getting raped and murdered. They're preventing genocide. Ukraine's foreign legion, which Campbell was part of, has been controversial. A general fatigue as the war drags on also means that fewer volunteers are signing up. Nelson Rumsey and Campbell fought alongside one another in the U.S. Army in Iraq. Rumsey says that he initially didn't approve of Chris's decision to join, but understood his motives. He's kind of was able to identify himself as not just another kind of punk kid coming over to try to do something, but somebody actually capable and actually qualified. And Rumsey says that something else stood out about Chris. He fell in love with the people that he went to go help. And in that short period of time he spent in Ukraine, his love made an impression. priest who delivered the eulogy is one of Ukraine's leading public intellectuals. The processional music came from award-winning folk artists. And his would-be father-in-law is a filmmaker, one of his movies a submission to the Oscars for Best Foreign Film. Sadina says anybody can become Ukrainian so long as they share certain values. And she says Campbell tried very hard. He became Ukrainians among Ukrainians. After the ceremony, she followed Campbell's coffin to a Kiev cemetery, where he was buried according to his last wishes. Julian Haida, NPR News, Kiev. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. And coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll hear about a new cookbook from America's Test Kitchen offering tips for people with chronic back pain. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers whose spring auction weekend is today and tomorrow. Learn more at groganco.com. The Umbrella Arts Center with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple, May 12th to June 4th, theumbrellaarts.org. And Zoo New England, Zoo What Makes You Happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, zoonewengland.org. Join Here and Now co-host Robin Young at City Space Tuesday, May 16th for a conversation exploring toxic restaurant culture and how it can change. It's a free event for free tickets. Go to wbur.org events.
I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. King Charles III has been crowned. More than 2,000 guests, including world leaders and other dignitaries, were inside Westminster Abbey for the coronation ceremony. Outside, people crowded into central London to be on hand for the event. The cause of a fire at a chemical plant in the Houston area is being investigated, and officials say they are monitoring the air for any harmful impacts. Authorities say five contractors at the Shell plant in Deer Park were hospitalized due to heat in proximity to the fire. And the Broadway production of Disney's The Lion King will play its 10,000th performance this evening. The show was the third longest running in Broadway history. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The mental health crisis among U.S. teenagers has brought together an unusual group of senators to join forces. Two Democrats, two Republicans, all parents of children or teens have proposed legislation that would take aim at social media, limiting access by children and restricting kind of content that's targeted to them. And Paris Congressional Correspondent Deidre Walsh sat down with this bipartisan group and brings us this report. Freshman Alabama Republican Senator Katie Britt is a mom of two teens. She says she heard from parents at her kids' track meet about the negative impact of social media. As I talk to other moms who are trying to deal with this, it tells you um, the, the troubling uncertainty that social media brings into children's lives. She says some apps are only ramping up anxiety among kids. And I think all of us can look back to when we grew up and look at the challenges of being you know, a middle schooler or a high schooler. If you add the pressures of social media, you can see how, how quickly that could have a negative impact on children who are trying to learn and grow and explore and be. Britt and another conservative, Arkansas Republican Tom Cotton, teamed up with two progressive Democrats, Brian Schatz of Hawaii and Chris Murphy of Connecticut, on a bill they say will help shield kids from harmful content on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. If the four of us can agree on this, you know, who come from very different political and ideological backgrounds, I think there's real hope that this approach can get to the Senate floor and get 60 votes. That's Senator Murphy, who says their bill puts parents in the game to make sure their kids' data isn't accessed and used by tech companies. He saw the upsides for his two sons connecting online during the pandemic, but... I've also seen the flip side. I've seen uh, amongst my kids' peers uh, how very quickly these algorithms can drive you to dangerous content, to content that is encouraging self-harm, that's making you feel shameful about your body. Cotton says these companies make money off of keeping kids addicted. Social media is designed to feed uh, them exploitative content, stuff that's going to attract their eyeballs continuously, and in many cases, it's age-inappropriate. 
And he says this legislation focuses on helping parents gain more control. They just want the same power they have in the real world to extend to the digital world. Schott says it was surprisingly easy for the four to agree on a bill once they zeroed in on the severity of the problem. He pointed out that more than half of teen girls feel persistent despair and the spike in mental health challenges across the board. The legislation says you have to be 13 to get an account, must have your parents' consent, and it also blocks social media companies from using algorithms to distribute content to kids. Here's Schatz. These algorithms are probably more powerful than an adult's brain, but certainly more powerful than a developing child's brain. And their business model is to make kids linger. Some senators say this approach could put more onus on parents and less on the tech companies. Britt says the facts speak for themselves. Data doesn't lie. From 2011 to 2019, we more than doubled um, the, the feeling of depression amongst our teens. One in three young women in high school has said that she has considered suicide. And when you think about that, inaction is not an option. While other bipartisan efforts to tackle online safety are more focused on policing content and forcing the social media companies to be accountable, these four senators stress their bill's ban on the algorithm, the driver of the content, is what can protect vulnerable teens. Another key provision is requiring age verification before kids can create accounts and setting up a system for parents to approve their kids signing up. Cotton stresses they take a flexible approach and use technology that companies already use for other applications. They could use third-party contractors of the kind that, say, the VA currently uses or states as politically diverse as Wyoming and California use. The important part is they cannot simply continue to use simple check-the-box attestations or the entry of a birthday, which are, of course, easily evaded. Some civil liberties groups argue collecting more data from parents about their kids could add to privacy concerns. Cotton dismissed those arguments. The data we're talking about here is your birthday, your birthday, stuff that many people put online voluntarily or that government agencies at your local, state, and federal level all have access to and know, and your parent-child relationship. That's it. Tech companies maintain they already have tools in place to police dangerous content for kids and say they constantly reevaluate them. A spokesperson for Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, told NPR that research from parents, teens, and academics shapes the protections they have in place, and they will work with policymakers on these issues. Congress doesn't have much of a track record passing legislation that regulates or restricts tech companies, but Schatz thinks the country is at a tipping point. Yes, it's true that every year someone proposes something in terms of tech policy, and every year the tech industry kills it. I do think this time is different because parents and even children are standing up and saying enough is enough. In the last week, two more bipartisan bills have been unveiled in the Senate to boost safety measures for kids online. They take aim at making the social media companies more accountable through new regulations on data collection, oversight by federal agencies, and bans on advertising. These four senators say the more, the merrier. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. And now it's time for sports. The Kentucky Derby overshadowed by horse deaths, a college baseball betting scandal, and underdogs rise in the NHL playoffs. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Hi there, Michelle. 
Good morning, Scott. It is Kentucky Derby Day, but at Churchill Downs, four horses have died in five days. Safi uh, Joseph Jr., the trainer of two of those horses, parents pride in chasing Artie, has been suspended. Another horse he trained has been scratched from the race. Um, if there's no pattern or suspicion in these deaths, does it just raise the question again if horse racing itself is just too dangerous for the athletes? The horses, I mean. Sure. Well, the the horses are the athletes yes. here as well, right? Uh, yeah, four deaths in a short amount of time is concerning. Two did have injuries, one on the turf, one on the dirt track, and, and they had to be euthanized. And then two horses who essentially collapsed uh, and died right on the spot. You know, experts say those are the ones that, that are very, very troubling here uh, because these are not muscle or skeletal injuries that we've seen in the past and, and then sometimes they have to put the horses down but these are horses suddenly collapsing and dying and the trainer who's who was suspended says yeah. there wasn't anything unusual in the blood work you know santa anita had a number of horses die in 2019 scott because of an issue with the track and they ended up having to shut the track down and rip it up but churchill downs is is working here uh with regulators to investigate they say it's alarming they say it's unacceptable and it's really not yet clear what happened you know the horses are getting the the uh horse equivalent of autopsies and the results could take weeks and we'll see some answers here but it'll be well after the derby which of course is the biggest yeah. event on the calendar for horse racing i have to ask you about university of alabama fire their baseball coach brad bohannon after an investigation into suspicious betting on the team's game against lsu last week uh what do we know and what did they think would happen <laughs> if, they, if sports gambling was legalized? Uh, it's a little bit of a watershed uh, moment here, uh, right? Last Friday in the game between Alabama and LSU, this was a first game, three-game series. About an hour before the game, the scheduled starting pitcher had some back tightness. He was replaced by a sophomore who hadn't started since mid-March. And around that same time, Scott, an individual in Cincinnati – don't know who yet, at the sports book at Great American Ballpark where the Reds play, placed two bets on LSU to win. Now, both of those bets were flagged by what's called an integrity advisor in mm -hmm. Vegas. He alerted the state of Ohio's regulators, and they took Alabama off the board. Now, Tuesday, I was in touch with Alabama Athletics. They told me that they were aware of this. They were gathering information. And 36 hours later, the head coach is out, Brad Bohan, and he was fired now, the inference here is that he may have been passing on inside information, which, of course, Scott, we know it's a big no-no. You know, for all the concern about players maybe throwing games, uh, Bohannon, he's the head coach. He makes around half a million dollars a year in that position. Yeah. Okay, quickly, NHL playoffs are in full force. Heavy favorites are out. Um, Bruins, the Lightning, the Avalanche. Who do you see? Is Dunzo. The, the, pardon me? I said Dunzo. Yeah. So, so who do you see? Who do you, we, we've got we've got twenty seconds left. Who are you calling? Okay. There? Okay. All right. Real quickly here. You know, if the Blackhawks aren't in the postseason, I do pick one team to follow. And this year, I chose the Leafs. They've got some exciting stars, but that's not the team I'm going with. I'm going with the team that they're facing tomorrow night in South Florida, the Florida Panthers. Yeah. They're up 2-0 in the series. The Panthers knocked off the mighty record-breaking Bruins in the first round. Uh, winning three games in a row to take the series. Matthew Kachuk cannot be denied. He's in his first season with the Panthers. They're playing with so much energy, Scott. I'm going to be watching them tomorrow night in South Florida. Michelle and that's Steele. 20 seconds, I think. Thanks so much. <laughs>
You bet. Cooking can be a physical activity. Bending, lifting, twisting just to boil a pot of pasta. For people with back pain, it can also require a lot of wincing and moaning. NPR's Ping Wong tells us about a new cookbook with recipes designed to place less strain on the cook's back. It's called The Healthy Back Kitchen, and it's published by America's Test Kitchen, that cookbook empire. It's for people like Julie Bazzocotti. She's had back and neck pain for the past 15 years that seriously limits her ability to cook. A typical dinner for her and her family is... Frozen pizza. (laughs) It's a lot of frozen pizza and salad, or mac and cheese and salad, or angel hair and salad. Cody works for America's Test Kitchen. She wasn't involved with making this book, but she got an early copy to review. She wants to cook more, but with back pain, it seems out of reach. Chopping up a chicken for soup, which is something I love to do, or for just a weeknight roast chicken, is very daunting. Thinking about like trying to use that knife to get leverage and standing and pushing. One possible solution is to get a small chicken from the grocery store, spatchcocked by the butcher. It's one of many suggestions from the book to reduce the strain that cooking puts on your back. Along with clear recipes and glossy food photos, there are lessons in spinal anatomy. It was written with Dr. Griffin Baum, a spine surgeon at Northwell Health in New York City. He says it addresses two realities of life. All human beings have to eat, so you have to eat, and all human beings will have back pain. That's just like part of, like there's no person who goes their whole life without back pain. The book speaks to people with chronic back pain, often caused by arthritis in the neck and spine. That can't be cured, Baum says. It can only be managed. So that's the approach that we have, which is not like, how do you eat better to cure back pain? No, it's how do you make modifications in the kitchen? How do you approach the act of cooking and the act of eating in order to manage your back pain? You do it by prepping ingredients while seated, using a rolling cart to schlep tools around the kitchen. Baum says they spent weeks figuring out how to load an oven without bending. You know, we ended up coming up with what I think is pretty cool on like, you know, how do you pull out the rack when it's like searing hot, 350 degrees and using tongs? And how do you set up a stool and what's the right size stool and how do you set something on there? Baum says standing for more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time can aggravate back pain, so the recipes have built-in breaks. On good days, you can chop extra onions and freeze them. On bad days, you can be extra gentle with yourself and even toast nuts in the microwave. This could be useful for people with other conditions. Dr. Linda Shu is a primary care physician who teaches patients to cook at Kaiser Permanente in San Francisco. I think the same idea of, okay, let's simplify this recipe. Let's, you know, give you kind of lighter, easier to use cooking equipment. Those sorts of streamlining things would apply in in many cases, actually. Where people are recovering from surgery or dealing with mobility issues, anyone who struggles with the stamina to cook. For Cody, the book offers more than just tips and recipes. It gives her hope that she can cook a healthy meal and still have the energy to do other things. So we can have dinner and then go outside and play or be able to go on a bike ride before dinner and then quickly put it together. And again, not just be frozen pizza. Today, her neck pain is pretty bad, but she plans to spend 15 minutes chopping onions and leeks this morning. She'll take a long rest from standing before pulling together a lush, creamy cauliflower soup for dinner. Ping Huang, NPR News.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Today is the coronation of King Charles III. It is also the 149th running of the Kentucky Derby, and another day in which B.J. Lederman does our theme music. The confluence of these events means that the total number of outrageous hats worn today may be historic. The coronation has gone to hat designers' heads already. Everybody should be wearing a hat all the time. Fantastic! These are entrance makers. These are hats that it's not for a wallflower. If you're a wallflower. Feathers, fascinators, wide, wide brims. These hats may look a little ridiculous to some people, but high fashion to others. And there's also centuries of millinery tradition on parade today. In events like this at the Kentucky Derby or at the Coronation, our eye is kind of drawn to the most extreme example of it. But one of the reasons why people have been wearing hats to very formal events for a long time is because there's a way to do it that looks really elegant, really pretty, and feels kind of befitting of the occasion. That's Sarah Spellings, a fashion editor at Vogue. For Louisville hat makers, the Derby means big and serious business every year. Jenny Fannensteel is owner of Forme Millinery. There's a lot that goes into the making of a hat. It's not just mechanical. Her process involves fitting the hat material, like felt or straw, over rounded wooden molds that have been passed down through generations of hatters. For me, it's also about working with these old forms, and thinking about who made a hat on this many years ago and what did they make it for and who did they make it for and almost having their energy come through in the making of each hat. Anything goes with the derby. Giant bows, sprawling, curling, feathers as big as your face or as long as your arm. Also, Barbie dolls, plastic horses, all with the help of glue guns and Michaels. There may be more formality at the coronation, but both occasions call... For a degree of playfulness, says Sarah Spellings of Vogue. I think most people who engage with this kind of level of fabulous fashion in part do it for fun because it's whimsical and enjoyable and taps into that feeling of playing dress up, which I think for many lovers of fashion, you don't get tired of playing dress up. We do silently cringe when they're worn at the wrong angle which could, or something like that. That's Emily Baxendale, creative director of the luxury headwear brand Emily London. Her clients include members of the royal family, but she's not going to talk about them or their hats. She will say about what counts as a chapeau faux pas. The smaller style hat will often be secured with like a discreet elastic or, or a hidden wire headband. It's one of my personal kind of, ah, when somebody doesn't put their hair over that. You know, the perfect hat should really look like it sits effortlessly. You shouldn't see any fixings or anything like that. I myself have covered up my elastic with this set of headphones. Back in Kentucky, milliner Jenny Fannensteel says that craft is vital, but so is giving her clients an experience they will treasure. My main goal is to make people feel beautiful. I want them to walk out that door with the hat and the dress on and the whole nine yards and go on that track and have the best memorable experience. And whether you pull on an enormous sun hat at Churchill Downs or a feathered tiara at Westminster Abbey or that jewel-encrusted crown, today will be one to remember. Dirt roads and white lines and all kinds of stop signs. I stand right here where I'm at. Cause I wear my own kind.
and a hat. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. A vote in Nantucket today could change the short-term rental market there. A proposal set to be presented today at town meeting calling for sharply reducing the number of available short-term rentals, such as Airbnbs. The measure would require the short-term rental serve as a primary residence for the majority of the year. Supporters say the plan would alleviate pressure on the tight housing market that's pushed out some longtime residents. Opponents say, among other drawbacks, the measure would drastically cut down on available rental properties and tax revenue. Today, the Massachusetts tribe at Ponkapog is marking the 400th anniversary of the massacre at Wessagusset. In 1623, English colonists in what is now North Weymouth ambushed members of the tribe. Tribe members will hold a memorial this afternoon at the Wessagusset wetland and woodland site. It is 62 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the low 70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. There's always something new. Coming soon, the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Prepare to be amazed. MOS.org. The Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Guides on buying and selling real estate in Greater Boston. Available at mraboston.com slash WBUR. And Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings, your joy, your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or Staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Burkhard Bilger grew up in a family of German immigrants in Oklahoma in the 1960s and says his mother spoke of Nazism in World War II as she might tell a sinister fairy tale in rough woodcut images, black and white, gouged with red. The admired New Yorker writer has turned his repertorial skills on his own family and the role of his grandfather, Karl Gunner, who was sent from Germany to oversee a school in a village in Alsace in Nazi-occupied France in 1940. He risked his own life to save lives or gave orders that cost lives, depending on who you ask, or was it both? Burkhard Bilger's powerful new memoir is Fatherland, and he joins us from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's great to be here. I have to begin by asking, why not just let your family history rest, whatever it is? You know, I think it's just a, a story that itched at me. It had been so hidden for so long in, in my family's life. My mother had written her PhD on on uh, Vichy France and, and done her research, but had never really looked into her father's own story. And then there was this moment in, in 1983 when she had 
actually gone back to the village where he had been the principal of the school as well as the Nazi party chief and was about to leave when she saw an old man walking by. So she ran over to him and kind of blurted out, um, excuse me, you know, my father was, was stationed here during the war. His name was Carl Gunnell. Would you happen to have known him? And this old man was dumbstruck and looked at her and said, oh, of course I knew him. I saved his life. Mm. And it turned out that he had been the head of the resistance in that village. And when the French liberated the village in 1944, they were about to shoot my grandfather and he had interceded and said, no, that not this man. He had actually done, he's done some things with me to help the village. So suddenly the story that we had kind of kept hidden in the family for, for decades was much more complicated. Like, who was this man? Was he, was he a Nazi? Was he not a Nazi? Did he do good? Did he do bad? And as a grandson, as well as a journalist, I just couldn't leave that story alone. Yeah. Tell us about the, uh, the packet of letters your mother received a few years ago. My aunt had been cleaning out my grandfather's old belongings in the attic of their house in Germany and had found in his desk a series of old letters, you know, written, handwritten, kind of in this very kind of country scrawl. And she sent them to my mom, because, you know, my mom had done this historical research, and it turned out they were all testimonials written by the villagers in France, where he had been the Nazi party chief. And they were done at great risk, because they were written in 1946, 1947, when France was going to the, you know, the purification phase where 300,000 French people were tried for collaboration and a lot of people were summarily executed. It was an extremely dangerous place in France and time in France to have any kind of hint of Nazi sympathies. I mean, about, about 9,000 people were just, were just hung or, or executed, shot. Yeah. A very scary and you know, horrible time. And in the midst of that period, these 17 villagers had written testimonials to the French military government saying, this former Nazi that you have under arrest actually did good things for us in the village during the war. You know, he kept our sons hidden when they were trying to draft them to, send to, to be sent to Russia. They got us out of the camps so if we got sent there for saying something anti-German when we were drunk at night. You know, that, these are all these very, to me, poignant stories from the war that he told. And yet at the same time, he was, um, he was officially held responsible for somebody's death, wasn't he? That's the thing with him is that, you know, it's such a double-sided story for me. I mean, he did, he did join the Nazi party in 1933. He went to the rallies in Nuremberg. He heard exactly how, how deadly serious and prejudiced um, Hitler was. And he continued to be a loyal party member up until 1944, I mean, he, he led the Hitler Youth and was somebody who was very intent on, as he said, you know, forwarding the principles of national socialism. There was a lot about him that was kind of rigidly adhered to the party line. And yet, when push came to shove and people's lives were at stake, that's when he kind of showed a certain kind of courage. Yeah. My wife is French. My, my late mother-in-law spent the first five years of her life living in a cellar because Nazi staff officers occupied their home in Normandy. Hmm. And when I was just getting to know her, I asked her what that was like. And she said, oh, the officers were so nice. They played with us. They snuck us little treats, we kids. Right, right. Oh, you know, and we're just not used to hearing that. And, yeah, and, and yeah. yet it was a tough time, and they were very glad when the Canadians came in. Yeah, that was, you know, for me, that was 
one of the impulses for writing this book was this, I feel like, you know, we have such a black and white view of that history and those people. Um, and in some ways, I feel like it makes us not confront the same issues in ourselves. If we think, oh, those Germans did a bad thing, the, the World War II and Nazism is all about something terrible that the Germans did. Um, and we forget that, of course, we all have that capacity that after Nazism, we had mass murders in China and Russia and Cambodia and Rwanda and Bosnia and Turkey. And, you know, we've just had a drumbeat of these kind of horrific behaviors. And, and it just and, becomes And our clear. own racial history in this country. And we have our own racial history. I mean, one of the things I do in the book is kind of show how there were parallel things happening in the United States, of course, not at the same degree at all, not to make an equivalency, but, you know, we had our own racial history going on and, and, and eugenics originated in the United States and sterilization campaigns happened in the United States. So I think if we don't kind of look at that history and then think, wow, humans have this capacity, we have this capacity, how, how are we in some ways similar to what this history shows us, then we miss the lessons of it. Yeah. Burkhardt Bilger's memoir, Fatherland. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's been great to be here. Thank you. Few rock bands are as prolific, dynamic, and ambitious as the Smashing Pumpkins. The group just released the final act of a 33-song rock opera called Autumn. Chicago Band has been making powerful and complex rock for decades. Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan joins us now from Los Angeles. Hey, hey, as they say at Wrigley Field. Hello, sir. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Opera begins with an instrumental piece that uh, sort of takes us into the, the vastness of space. And here we meet Shiny. The banished rock star. What is Shiny doing here? Well, the contrivance of the narrative is that he's an artist who's um, maybe his best days are past him. He doesn't have a lot of cultural or social significance, but for whatever reason, he represents a threat to a global order which doesn't necessarily want any dissident voices. He's basically given an option which is rather than put you in a jail and let you languish away. We're willing to put you in space, in a spacecraft for one, and that's where you spend the rest of your days. And so he's exiled. Who sweeps the squalid rain to scan through pinks and gray? Tell us about June, his karma. So, so June is a, a fan or a, an acolyte who's obsessed with Shiny. He doesn't know this person, but she's from a wealthy family, so she puts herself next to him in space where she can kind of keep tabs on him even if it's sort of an emotional sense that at least somebody is there for him. So the, the second song in, in the musical, Butterfly Suite, that's her kind of daily love song in an old Hollywood musical way. On this particular date, he punches in a code, which is like, hey, you always have the option of, of taking this very noble 
the act has been propagandized as a sort of a noble end. So it's called the March of Life. You punch in a code and your ship breaks orbit and just starts to float towards the sun. Of course, she's heart-stricken because this is the great love of her life floating away in space. Now, I gather this builds on your 1995 double album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. What were you picking up from that album? What made you kind of complete that arc? When we were doing what became our big style, Melancholy and Infinite Sadness, we were at the height of sort of a rising fame, MTV time. And I, I felt this need to do a larger work, which became conceptual. Behind the scenes, when I went to the record company, they said, please, please don't do a double album. No one cares about those things anymore. And we went on to make something which really touched a generation and became, you know, I think it's one of the only albums that's ever gone diamond. Enough of my bragging, but my point is, is I took this intellectual and creative leap and it ended up sort of working out. In 2000, when the band was breaking up, we did a second conceptual work called Machina, which sort of documents my descent into madness, which was on some level somewhat literal, and then the band's implosion, which was real. So I never thought there would be a third chapter to this story, but the band ended up getting back together, at least three quarters of it. I don't want to just slide over that phrase, descent into madness. <laughs> Is that a question? Or a... Well, that, that was real? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know, there were a lot of th forces going on. One was dealing with loss. My mother had, had died. Uh, the band, of course, imploding uh, far before its due date um, was very haunting for me. And then, you know, we had what now, of course, everybody understands in hindsight is this coming technological revolution. It changed the dynamic models within the music business about how artists made their money. Suddenly, everybody was losing money. Um, no one was selling records anymore. So as you can imagine, within the record business, the reaction was to become very conservative, which is not my normal MO. Mm. So suddenly you had a lot of fear. And when you put fear and art together, it tends not to result in a great work that doesn't touch people at a deeper level because it's based in, in something that I don't think most people resonate to, which is fear. Mr. Corgan, may I ask you about your father? Sure, any, anything you want. You've spoken about him in the past. Three-time convicted criminal. I will say, so you don't have to, from, in your explanation, often cold and cruel to you. Well, you know, my father, in an unkind way, used to say, it's, it's good you had such a terrible childhood because it made you a better rock star. And my argument was always, Daddy, you don't know who I would have become without that. You know, I, maybe I would have been a great classical composer and not some disassociative, struggling artist in a musical business that, that doesn't value people like me often. And I certainly received validation from my father, who was a musician, a very good musician. He did have opportunities in the music business and squandered every opportunity he had, mostly because of drugs and his, his issues with addiction. So navigating his disappointment and bitterness with his life experience and then him trying to figure out what to do with mine 
it was both tangible in the sense that he understood music, he understood what I was trying to do, but he oftentimes couldn't understand the scale and of the challenge. So when I would call him up and say, yeah, you know, he'd say, what are you doing? Well, I was just at the White House yesterday. It was hard for him to navigate that. But I'm struck by the fact that you still called him. Well, we had our ups and downs. There were years there where we didn't talk and there were years that we didn't. My father passed away for everybody listening about a year and a half ago. And um, we certainly had made our peace, um, but I can't say I ever felt like we reached a point of true understanding. After our second album came out and it was quite successful, he called me and said, and I sort of was bracing for the conversation because I thought, okay, here, here comes the, the horrible criticism. And he said, I don't know the person that made this record. And I said, he's been standing in front of you the whole time. Wow. One of the last songs in what I'll call this project is Spellbind. Crazy for your tomorrows. There's a lot of hope there. It happens to me occasionally. I have moments of optimism. Uh, <laughs> and what do we make of Take Me Away, I'm Gonna Find You? If you don't mind, I'll share a story with you I've never shared. The day we were recording the song that you just played, the song was basically the part you just played, that's all there was. Well, that morning, I had a dream, and it doesn't happen to me often, but it, it has happened, where I'll dream a song that I have not yet written. When I came to the studio that morning, we start recording, and we reached a point in the song where I thought, it gets a bit boring here. And I said, hey, you know what? I wonder if that dream that I had fits in this song. And it was the exact right key change. And we literally just dropped the dream into the song. It's magical the way it happened. I wish it happened to all the songs. But on that song, um, it was just a kind of a one in a zillion thing. Billy Corgan, front man of the Smashing Pumpkins, and uh, Autumn, the third and final act of their rock opera is out now. Mr. Corgan, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, my friend. Nice talking to you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Joy in Pandemic, a new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco, now through May 21st at the Calderwood BCA, huntingtontheater.org. Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum, online.merrimack.edu and Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, host of WBUR's All Things Considered. If you grew up listening to public radio from the back seat of your mom's car, maybe now's the time to thank her. Send her gorgeous Winston flowers and send them from WBUR to support what's become your favorite station. We can deliver the flowers almost anywhere in eastern Massachusetts. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.